Dear listener, I want you to imagine this scene. It's a grey monsoon morning. The rain is coming down in sheets. Under a plastic sheet, in an extremely hipster cafe, a plate of Turkish eggs shows up, which Supriya and I ignore because we're too busy talking about the things that we hate in great literature. Welcome to The Lit Pickers. We are a books and reading podcast. I'm Dipanj Napal. And with Dipanj Napal is Supriya Nair, her friend and fellow breakfaster, who prefers vitriol to Turkish eggs <laughs> and avocado toast. So we're bringing you the 20-minute hate. This episode is just us being haters. I know it might you be more us, than 20 minutes, by the way. I'm, just, I'm sensing a yeah, vibe. I'm sensing a vibe because I know that our listeners and our friends and lovers are used to thinking of us as people of considered imaginations, compassion, elegance. Uh, elegance, eloquence, you know, but underneath all of that, there is a real core of just hatred in us. And so this episode is dedicated to some of the things. <laughs> I don't think there's enough time in the world for all the things. Of which we are antis. Do you like the word anti? I find it really quite helpful. I find it quite descriptive. Yeah, it's anti-auntie. That's my vibe. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. the anti-auntie. We're the anti-aunties. That's true. Are we feminist killjoys? I have been a killjoy and I am a feminist, so possibly yes. Yeah, we've talked about Sarah Ahmed, from whom the phrase originates mm. elsewhere on the Lit Pickers. I have been called the black hole of fun, which is a badge of pride as far as I'm concerned. So here's the thing. The reason why we thought we would do this is because it goes without saying that we love reading, we love books, we love all things literary, practically. That's what we've done with this podcast for all of this time. Even people who have got hate from cultural establishments, people like Enid Blyton, for example, someone like Tolkien, who has now increasingly evoked divided opinions. But while we're here loving all that stuff, a lot of the times we're like, if only you wouldn't do this. And we end up finding ourselves feeling very strongly on the negative on certain things. That's right. I personally leave a lot of books unread because I feel increasingly anxious that I won't have time to read even a fraction of the books that I'm going to love mm. over the rest of my life. So I have actively tried not to be a hater. Mm. But sometimes these things really just get past you, don't they? Yeah, but it's also a lot of the stuff that I find myself getting more and more annoyed about as I grow older and I've read more is a rigidity. Because there's a very strong sense of what you should read, you know, what is considered literary and what is considered canon the establishment, this, you must read the classics. Yes, you must, but you must also know why you're picking certain classics and why you're responding to certain things and when that tradition deserves to die out <laughs> or is being done really badly. Boom. Fantastic candidate for an anti-auntie moment. The first thing that I'm going to recommend in this hate list is intellectual ponciness. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by this. There are literally about five generations of writers who have thought they are going to be the next James Joyce or Franz Kafka. You are not. Wow. Even Franz Kafka didn't want to be Franz Kafka. He asked Max Broad to burn yes. the bulk of his writing, right? And while I'm glad that did not happen. Very glad. Because he was an amazing writer. For the love of God, stop copying him. What I interpret this bit of the hate list as being about is canonification, mm -hmm. 
which I think is really something deserving of anti-auntie spite. Oh, nice. I like it. Speaking as someone who, as a 19-year-old, wrote an exam answer about Ulysses without having read the book, <laughs> which worked out just fine, by the way, because there is so much scholarship about Joyce that you can talk for a year about the book without actually having read it. I think the distance that is put between great or interesting or unique work and us as readers by the sheer snobbery, the grift and the mediocre gatekeeping mm. that surrounds these books is horrifying. I didn't even know that Ulysses could be fun until I started listening to a version of it during the pandemic. And then I got to say, I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So in like 1916, this guy who was obsessed with his girlfriends like P was really trying to do something new and yeah. different. And that was amazing. That was a real outlet for me as I was, you know, kind of walking around my colony during the pandemic, trying to keep social distance from yep, everyone else yep. who was power walking like a rat <laughs> in a cage. But if I hadn't had that lack of mediation and if I hadn't been able to have the actors in my earphones... Mm -hmm. Bringing that prose to life. Bringing it alive. Yeah. It would just have been dead James to Joyce is particularly uh, victimized in this fashion, I think. You know, Finnegan's Wake, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, Ulysses, and the whole idea of stream of consciousness writing has spawned too many works of mediocrity because they're just blindly trying to replicate the coolth that this writer possessed very naturally. That's right. Ulysses was the Barbie of its time. Yes. When it came out, <laughs> nothing was the same again after that. And it's okay if in 2023 you don't think that that's the case because you live in the world that Ulysses made. I want to give an example from another language, which I think gives you some sense of how rigid the literary establishment can be irrespective of languages. The French language has something called the Académie Française. Française yeah. right? It's the French Academy. It was set up in the 17th century by Cardinal Richelieu. He set up, I think, five academies. This is the one that has survived. Mm. And they are tasked with, A, bringing out the dictionary of the French language. They are also purveyors of the language. So what is allowed as a word, what is allowed in construction, these are all in the academy's control. <laughs> now, how many people are there in the academy whose members, incidentally, are called les immortels, which means the immortals? Right. What I'm sensing is that these are like 340-year-old men who have never died. 40 members mm. make up the academy. It's a lifetime membership. The first woman to make it in was Marguerite Hussenar in 1980 or 1983, something like that. The first <laughs> black person made it in, again, 1980 or 83. Second black member, Canadian of Haitian origin, 2015. This academy is in charge of the French language, right? In that 2016-2018 period, somewhere like that, there was a campaign by someone who's not part of the academy to introduce a different term for the French word for ghostwriter. Because the word that was being used is the equivalent of the N-word in French, Nobody was bothered by this for literally four centuries. <laughs> that is hilarious. And so French. It took months, I think, of campaigning. There's a wonderful episode in this podcast series called Rough Translation. The title of the episode is We Don't Say That. I would strongly recommend anyone who's interested in this to listen to it. It took this massive campaign to bring in a new term called prête plume for ghostwriter. Plume is uh, the, quill the quill with which you write. Pret, I think, is ready. So the ready quill. Hmm. You have to listen to the episode to understand how much effort it took to remove this terrible usage 
Now, this is a language that is from a country that is deeply indebted to civilizations by people of color. It's charged in the political and the racial sense in the present. And yet, it just did not respond. This is the kind of rigidity that leads to the kind of ponciness that makes a very sort of inflexible culture. I mean, what, you also have to wonder, like, what is the purpose of an Académie Française when they sit around all year to produce like a dictionary of fancy words and the French still say like, Télé. <laughs> for the telephone, you know? Not that I have any love lost for the gatekeepers of high Indian culture. Yeah. But when we had to invent a word for telephone, we went back and came out with Durdhvani. Yeah, or Durobhash in Bengali. Right. So incidentally, Pret Plume also goes back. There was a move to just include ghostwriter as a term. Le ghost. Le ghostwriter. <laughs> but no, the immediate reaction of the academy was that uh, we need to have a truly French word. So they went back in time. Actually, I said earlier that the first black person to be included as an immortel was uh, in 1980. To be fair, Alexandre Dumas was part of the academy and he had a black grandmother. So a mixed person, as it were, did make it into that elite crowd. But a recognizably black man it took till 1980. Alexandre Dumas might be the only Frenchman I have ever truly loved. <laughs> After Zinedine Zidane. Ooh. But this is not about people we love. It's not a sports podcast yet. Okay, so uh, intellectual ponciness, that is something that I would like to burn at the stake. Do you have one, Supriya? Okay, Lest our listeners think that we're purely going after the gatekeepers of high culture, I have a complaint to make about low culture. Yes. Okay, so I was at the airport last year and I saw seven, I'm not kidding you, seven different people reading a book by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, a book also with the word seven in the title. I was going to say, there's a pattern here. <laughs> it's called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Curiosity peaked. I went to the bookstore and picked up a copy. Turns out Taylor Jenkins Reid is ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And I started reading this book. It was a pretty breezy read, but about 100 pages in, I was like, wait, why am I reading something that is written as flat as the top of the Deccan Plateau? And I don't know how to describe this. If you've spent any time with the Lit Pickers, you know that we are lovers of pulp. We fly the flag for particularly unconventional romances. And even though I've fallen out of the habit of reading romances over the last few years, this is not new for me. I love it. And I was ready to love Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, but I'll tell you, you know, the exact line yes. that put me off. Warnings for not safe for work lines. So mm. cover your child's ears if they are listening next to you. She looked at me, comma, my breasts exposed. You're gorgeous, she said, even more gorgeous than I imagined. I was like, okay, you know, like no shade on Taylor Jenkins Reid for writing lines like these. I have written lines like these, but then I leave those in a Word document in fiction that is not meant for anybody else to read. But somebody told Taylor Jenkins Reid, just push it through our mm. money-making bestseller machine and then we're going to have like millions of people read this. Mm. I'm delighted for Taylor Jenkins Reid's success personally. Love to see a woman become a billionaire or whatever she Absolutely. is. I know that she's written half a dozen books and that all of them have been picked up for yeah, streaming like rights and things Daisy like Jones that. Daisy in the Six and right. whatnot. And yeah. I'm not taking away from the fact that Evelyn Hugo is a success, even though it's not a conventional happy ending and mm. it's not a love story between a man and a woman. Mm. Oh, I should have said spoiler, <gasps> spoiler alert. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> but literally, guys, I haven't finished reading the book, but... 
I assumed that the only reason people were reading it was because, you know, the love story wasn't between a man and a woman. But how can you put out writing that is so bland and vibeless into the world? You know, it's what you had said when we were talking about this earlier, the Taylor Jenkins redification of the heroine. This is writing that's exactly the opposite of Austen. Jane Austen's heroines were written to complicate the idea of femininity, to make an audience's hackles rise and then be sufficiently charmed by this woman all the same. The object of these heroines of this genre of writing, and she's hardly the only person doing it, right, is to be as flat as possible. And this is not even going into the fact that this particular book, as far as the 100 pages I got into I can tell from, is a flattening pastiche of yes. Hollywood history, right? Yes. And when you have history that is so startlingly alive about mm. the women who managed to make their way in old Hollywood, and your job is to make that more boring for mm. like readers who don't know anything about it, I have to wonder, where is the audacity coming from? Absolutely. And as one romance curious reader to another... Don't you feel that even the purpose of good romance is actually to make you fall in love with a heroine? I yes. don't think there is any sense of that in a book like this at all, is there? Of course, if you don't fall in love with the heroine, you don't fall in love with the hero. Or the other heroine in yeah, this case. Yeah, or anybody else, basically. It's one of the few genres that has kept a feminine perspective at the centre of storytelling. Whether it is through bringing in ideas of class, whether it's through bringing in ideas of unpleasantness, about ambition, about sexism, like it's complicated it and seen it from a woman's perspective. That's one of the reasons why women have continued to throng and support this genre. But it's also led to others who feel marginalized in different ways to come to this genre. And this genre has given space to that. I mean, Popular fiction and commercial fiction tends to flatten things out. That seems to be what all corporations seem to do to interesting ideas. Sure. But the idea of a heroine in a romance novel who is a girl boss at a corporation <laughs> not necessarily giving you a sense of what working at IBM is like is fine. Mm. I think what's going on with the yeah. TJRification of character and of fiction in general is maybe... IPification, if yeah. you like, yeah. that's IP for intellectual property, where you're borrowing from real life. And I've been in some rooms where, you know, talk about this stuff goes on. So I know mm. that this particular flavorless sausage is made by trying to blandify things as much as possible mm. so that you can pass, you know, the tests of a court of law rather mm. than of taste or sensibility or fun. Yeah, which is so disappointing, right? Because at the end of the day, like what you're trying to do is ring bells, but not loud enough. And that seems like a terrible choice. Yeah, ring my bells hard, babe. Ring them. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. over to you. Very closely related to what you were talking about, I have a problem with lazy writing. And let me explain what I mean by lazy writing. Sort of continuing from what you were saying, there's a general belief that what will work commercially, and this is particularly true, I think, in Indian publishing rather than everywhere, but I suspect it's true elsewhere also. There's a prevailing understanding that for something to be commercially successful, it also needs to be stupid. By it, I mean the narrative, the characterization, the story development, keeping it as unintelligent as possible will make it easily consumable by digestible. an audience. Yeah, digestible. That's a better word. Are we talking about lazy publishing? So here's the thing. I am loath to 
point fingers at either authors or publishers because I presume you're all working under certain constraints and surely you want to do better. The output doesn't suggest it, but I would like to believe that. The narrowness of perspective that comes from this unintelligent writing is that it's just shoddily done. And it becomes like if there's one self-help book that has worked somewhere in the world, we must churn out 20,000 of them in the next month so long as, you know, we can meet certain targets and whatnot. Also, the lazy writing, I think, in India that you see it most prevalently is in the kind of pop fiction, which has a thread of romance, but will never, ever be given the kind of shade that romance novels are. Stuff like Ravinder Singh, Chetan Bhagat's books, which are actually romances, by the way. They're just romances yeah, told romances from a male boys. perspective. Yeah. I don't know if they're romances for boys, but they are certainly self-love stories in that sense. <laughs> I have no problems with you writing self-love stories for boys. Go ahead, knock yourself out. But write it better. Yeah, you're reminding me of the distinction that we make between pulp, mm. which is produced quickly by people who just want to churn things out and make a quick buck off them, which is a long and noble tradition <laughs> in literature. And the aggrandizement mm. of this sort of thing I mean, please, you know, like, have some perspective on what you're doing. And the aggrandizement becomes like, you know, privileging the commercial as though the literary is a bad thing. Like literary in the sense of somebody who has worked on their manuscript is intending for it to have yeah, greater Yeah, I remember in the days of Chetan Bhagat's prominence in particular, he tried to position himself as because he wrote simply yeah. and wrote for people who, you know, presumably didn't read much before was the true public intellectual, while people who actually made an effort to work on their books or wrote without having much thought for mm. reaching millions of people or parlaying their uh, book rights into hefty speakers' fees at colleges who around the country. focused on their subject rather than their audience, essentially. It was a binary that he created, by the way. Nobody That's created that for him. That's right. And it's such a spurious it is. binary. And the free reign that that was allowed to have mm. on our editorial landscape, I think, for years yeah. was pretty disgusting to watch. Yeah, it was very disappointing because, again, like I have no trouble with somebody reading or in, even enjoying any book, even if it is lazy writing, as I'm calling it. Go right ahead. But don't pretend that being shoddy with it is something to celebrate. Yeah. And I think it speaks to a kind of arrogance that product must be pushed for profit mm. without involving real hard grinding effort, which involves a lot of time and whose results may not be immediate. That is a real anti-attitude and it is so dangerous. It is anti-discipline, anti-fun. The only thing it's pro is, is a quick buck, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it's pro speed. And I get it. Look, I mean, the Panchana and I would love to make a lot of money for very little work. Arguably, compared to the majority of our fellow citizens, we are, in fact, doing just that. Possibly, yeah. But I think there is a basis to creating work that is not consumption-ready. Consumption-ready and profit-driven. And I know that sounds like we've come back to the same old thing that you hear from, like, the indigo-clad aunties at the IIC. But... I guess we, the anti-aunties, have picked a side <laughs> in this. Okay, thank and you for articulating my argument way better than I had it in my head. No way. On to the next one. Your pick. I'm going to say this only because he is perhaps the most loved author in India. Mm. We all know that the book is among the great books of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And anything I can say is really an egg being thrown at a wall. 
but I have so much rage in my heart for the ending of A Suitable Boy. <laughs> I can't stand it when I think about it. I want to get up and tear off my headphones and walk around the studio fuming right now. <sighs> I have the same feeling about War and Peace, actually, which is a book about which I have far more ambivalent feelings, but where also the ending, I don't need to describe it to people who have even read about War and Peace. Both of them are similar in that the main female character in both ends up in a happy marriage or something like a happy mm. marriage. And both of them do it for the same reason. Those happy marriages are the authors arriving at a compromise, right? Mm. So mm. Sait, in A Suitable Boy, has Lata marry Haresh. I'm not going to apologize for the spoiler here, guys. <laughs> because he's telling the story of the first decades of independent India through yeah. Lata. Yeah. And so the choice she makes over there is the choice of compromise. Mm. And so he's telling you about what India could manage to do and what it couldn't manage to yeah. do. Through this personal choice. Through this yeah, personal yeah. choice. But that's what makes me so upset. I think it's such a great example of how the reading of a book really sort of can change with the times in which you read it. In that, I think in this particular time, by which I mean the last 10 odd years in India, we are a generation that has felt very deeply the importance of taking idealistic steps, not compromising and pushing for that irrational, bound-to-lose option. So for us, I think it feels a little more frustrating than it did when Vikram Seth was writing it. And like you said, there's a metaphor that's going through, right? But it is so frustrating to read. For me, like, you know, a great book, which is A Suitable Boy, by the way, works at multiple levels, at a basic level of story, character, where you're not reading, scratching surface, you're just taking it in the present. Because the surface is dense and uh, rich enough for you to just sit on that without sinking into anything else. I just want more for Lata. Yeah, and I think wanting more for Lata is also really just wanting more for us, right? Yes. Which, in tribute to A Suitable Boy, says a lot about what the book has meant to mm. many of its readers and its place in stories about India. Mm. It's funny, this idea about who you choose, what you settle for. For me, Kabir is the missed chance, yeah. as he is for everyone who reads the book, in the same way that Andrei Bolkonsky in War and Peace is the man Tolstoy yearns for, right, mm. to have helped rebuild Russia and whose passing he mourns because it's his decision to have Natasha marry yes. Pierre at the end is really just him mourning that the only people left behind are people like himself mm. because Pierre is the Tolstoy figure. So he's like, I'm the happy ending of this novel mm. uh, and that's about all I can give it. And I don't think A Suitable Boy is dark in the same way. I think we're allowed to feel affection for Harish. My heart doesn't yearn for an alternative because I think Harish is a bad choice or that he's just so much more ordinary than Amit or mm. you know, the other boys in the book. Mm. Think of what Kabir stands for. Yes. I also think perhaps in some ways this is a function of the particular place and class that Sate is writing about. My mother and I went to the same school. We both grew mm -hmm. up in the same neighborhood 30 years apart. Mm. And so many of her friends had interreligious marriages. Mm -hmm. And so few of mine have done. Mm. And we've grown up in very different circumstances, right? My mother and my grandparents had so much less than I and my friends grew up with. And yet social change in some ways has taken us in very different directions. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? A suitable boy is not about India's radical history or the kind of contrarian strain in independent India. I don't think it was something that guided the writing of it. 
And I think what makes me feel sad reading it now is the sense of the darker shadows behind Lata choosing a guy like Harish. Which I think feel a lot more visible to us now because of the times that we are in That's and right. because of what we know. And that is also a feature of a good book yeah. because it is able to give you more about your world even though it was not written in your world. Yeah. You know? It's extraordinary, but I just want more for her. If the book wasn't so fat, when I got to those last three or four pages, I would have thrown it across the room. Okay, moving on. This is a recent grouse. This is not a recent thing in literature, but it has suddenly, it seems to be everywhere, particularly in American fiction. I'm talking about autofiction. Oh, I need <laughs> so to take trendy. a so here's the thing. I'm all for privileging certain points of view, which is technically what autofiction should be able to do. That's what gives it power. We have a literary culture which has traditionally, as we were talking about earlier, canonified certain kind of storytellers. When you say that autofiction will sort of add to the diversity, it should be able to do that. Does it? No, friend, it does not. I like the idea of a form of experimental literature that collapses the distance between narrator and author, that plays with reality, that leaves you wondering what's real, what isn't, and that being part of your immersion in the story, given that the author is dead, but that the author is also more visible than ever on social media. I think it's a very smart maneuver for literature to push back against that and say, you broke the walls down, we're going to use that and complicate it. But I also feel like it's given rise to something that Dipanjana talked about earlier in this episode, which is lazy writing. I mean, in the end, stuff has to be interesting. There's a self-indulgence to autofiction. There's an automatic sense of, you must listen to my story. The centrality of this author-narrator being put above the story itself, above insight, and this assumption that because I have placed myself at the center, I am now worthy of occupying that center. Sometimes it's very true. We have great examples of autofiction where it absolutely works. Nine times out of ten, though, that's when the author is from a marginalized community or is bringing forward a perspective that has not been allowed to occupy the center. Unfortunately, those are very rare examples. I also feel like autofiction feels so much like the preserve of ivory tower types. Yeah, it takes away from the story. And that is ultimately what annoys me the most about it, I have to admit. Honestly, if you're navel-gazing made for a better reading experience, I would probably be fine with it. Hello, I've read like trashy romances and enjoyed the hell out of them because they were servicing a story. And by doing that, they're servicing me, the reader. When your story is not being served by this device, it's just aggrandizing the author rather than platforming the ideas in the work itself. Yeah, I think something where personality subsumes work is dangerous for the discipline. I also find it unfun that a form that started out on the margins, that started out as liminal and experimental, mm. has ended up assuming the importance that it has, which then has led to it becoming a hashtag trend. It also reminds me of something that our friend Paramita Vora said when we were talking about recently about a film that we absolutely hated for its joylessness. Mm. She was like, at least have the courage to try and charm me. Yeah. And I think a lot of critics who uphold a certain kind of writing as, you know, being necessary mm. because of its ambiguity, because of its experimentalism, 
really need to see how many boundaries are being pushed once the trend has crested and come back to thinking about if you are writing this for a reader where is the bravery in this writing be genuinely transgressive be genuinely committed to pushing against the boundaries that have already collapsed because new ones have been set a little further away go that distance take all the pages you want with your auto fiction my friend i will read it with love right now though you just want me to pat you on the back and say oh my god tell me your story i don't want to know your story if you're not going to make it interesting you want me to buy overpriced tickets to your gated literature festival essentially i'd <sighs> rather buy lunch i'd rather buy lunch too and on that note we're going to wrap up the 20 minute hate which i think has spilled <laughs> over into well something a bit longer than minutes. the 20 minute hate we'll come back with more focused hate and other things until we do This has been The Lit Pickers, a podcast about books and reading, brought to you from the city of Bombay. And my friend Deepanjana is saying farewell as am I, Supriya. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag #litpickers. Follow Supran the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks. Keep listening. <laughs>